Hey, it's Zach. Before we get to today's show, I wanted to remind you to check out the First Take, Her Take podcast hosted by Charlie Arnold, Kimberly Martin, and the great L. Duncan from the 6 O'Clock Sports Center. They spilled the tea on their lives while also discussing the hottest stories in sports and pop culture. That's First Take, Her Take. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you're looking for world-class soccer, and who isn't? ESPN Plus is where to find it. The best teams, the biggest stars in over 20 international leagues and tournaments. Serie A, Bundesliga, MLS, FA Cup, Copa del Rey, and more. Sign up now at ESPNplus.com. The Low Post is brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post podcast on Memorial Day Monday after an absolutely wild and blowout-filled week of basketball. And to start us off on a mega podcast today, we're going to bring in ESPN's Tim McMahon in Dallas, who was witness to the Clippers absolutely providing a response that, frankly, I didn't see coming, digging deeper in a way that I didn't think they had in them. I thought they might get a split. I did not think they would go to Dallas and get both and put their put themselves back in control of this crazy series. Mr. McMahon, how are you? Man, just, just fantastic on this rainy Memorial Day. How about you? Hanging in, brother. I So, so from, from 12.55 to 1 p.m. Eastern yesterday, I chopped an onion. And okay. that was the end of my contributions to the low household for the rest of the day. But that onion chopped it really well. And then I just sat and I watched basketball for I, I don't know, how many hours passed. I don't know. It was a lot of games. It was a great news. I thought you were going to explain why you were crying, but okay. You, you no, did, I just you did, I, you now, did five but I just minutes worth of household duties. Five I did minutes something. is a long time to chop an onion. Like, I mean, this I'm not thing, was very, it like finely diced? What are you doing? Fine, with this very finely chopped. Very finely chopped. Okay. That was key. And I'm not very good at it. Um, so this, so this Clippers series, this, this is everything you want out of sports, right? Like this is a team that comes into the playoffs with all these ghosts hovering over Mm -hmm. them, right? Game one, Paul George misses a million shots, looks jittery. They lose the game. Game two, their defense just melts down. So many breakdowns, guys yapping at each other, miscommunications. They have the look of a team in both those games that is frazzled, that is overwhelmed, that is confused, and that the moment is suddenly there. It's too big for them, and that's that's very that's very relatable as a human being, right? Like I love, I mean, I don't love when teams suffer. In <laughs> I sports, love other but people's I, failures because I can no, relate. No, I, I, no, I've always said like when Pedro Martinez just decided he was going to bean Yankees because he couldn't he couldn't beat them, and then he said the Yankees are my daddy. I, that made him so relatable to me because like we just rarely see that sort of humanity, and the Clippers were crumbling and mentally fragile and then they go to Dallas and they regroup no and they hold dig on deep. they go to Dallas and, and they're they, down 30 11 that's 30 what you're to say. 11 and I'm flashing back to uh I'm flashing back to Phil Jackson's retirement you know when the Mavericks uh, just lit the world on you know Jet and Peja and all those guys just couldn't miss and they run the Lakers out of the gym Andrew Bynum's body slamming JJ Beret it's a total I'm thinking this is the best the Mavericks have looked in the playoff in a playoff game since then. It's thirty to eleven. Luca can't miss. He's feeding everybody. I mean, the, I'm, like, I'm I'm on the, the Clippers trade are machine, crumbling. Like, the Clippers I'm on the are trade crumbling. Machine. I'm on the trade machine. Like, well, if Philadelphia flames out. Is there a Ben Simmons for Paul George trade? What about Brandon mm-hmm. Ingram? Can we get Zach? Like, what's gonna happen? And then they storm back, and um, PG and Kawhi 
play like the absolute best yep. versions of themselves. Kawhi's on another planet. This is MVP Kawhi, the last Absolutely. two games. This is 2017 Kawhi, the guy I voted for MVP. The guy who like single-handedly would go like steal, dunk, steal, three. Well, this he is has the, the Raptors to the championship Kawhi. I think even better. I think this is the 2017 Kawhi. When he was guarding Luka and he just picked him, he just picked him. And then, of course, they blow the two-on-one and you're like, what the hell's going on? But that was like Sharktopus Kawhi. You can't dribble within right. two, five feet of this dude. Or when and he's guarding Luka and they try to run a little, you know, pick to get the switch on Reggie Jackson. He's like, hell no, I'm fighting through it. You're not getting the, You're not dictating the mismatches. And you know what? The urgency of those fight throughs, like he would go under and Luka would pull up like, oh, he went under and Kawhi mm. would be right back in his face so fast. There was another play where uh, Tim Hardaway Jr. caught the ball in the left corner on a fast break and Reggie Jackson ran him off a three, flew out of bounds, flew back into the play so that Timmy didn't get the fly by three. And you're like, this is, this is everything you ask for in sports. This is a team digging so deep and digging themselves out of that 30-11 hole, facing all those goals. Paul George, relentless. R rarely settling for mid-range jumpers. Always yeah. attacking the paint. Going at Porzingis over and over again. We'll talk about Boban in mm. a second and what role he might play in this series. This is everything you want in sports. And, and this series is awesome. And we'll talk about that. And yet, all anybody wants to talk about today in the NBA are two things. Uh, one reality that is just a reality that we have to deal with every year. And that's injuries. And that's... You know, uh, Luka Doncic is dealing with a neck problem. Chris Paul is dealing with a shoulder problem. Anthony Davis is out right now in L.A. We'll see if he plays game five. KCP's out. Jeff Green, Dante DiVincenzo, Robert Williams, Kemba Walker, on and on. This just stinks as part of the deal. And then the other reality that is completely avoidable if people weren't stupid, if some people weren't stupid, is just it seems like we can't get through a game without a fan doing something dumb. And, of course, last night it was the, the fan who has now been arrested throwing a water bottle at Kyrie Irving. And, like, we talked about this on The Jump last week. I want to have a, like, I feel like I need to have a take on this. There's no take. It's, like, the easiest thing in the world is to go to a sports game and just boo. That's, like, it's so easy. Just, if you have anything that can go from your body to the court, just don't throw it. It's, like, there's no, there's no hot take necessary. It's just, like, can mm -hmm. you just be a decent person? It's, like, unbelievable what, what possesses these people. Do you have well, a, is there anything else well, to say? Yeah, I, I would say this. I think that these these incidents, whether it's saying despicable things to players or parents, and and you know, oh, the stuff you reported thing, on Morant's it, dad it, is like it, it's unconscionable. The here's the thing: this, whether we want to admit it or not, these things are ingrained in American sports culture. I, I think the progress is that we've reached a point to where. We're calling these things out. But listen, you know, Vernon Maxwell tweeted today talking about, you know, at some point, you know, you just got to do something about it. And he got suspended for going in the stands. Well, somebody was talking about his stillborn daughter. You know, this was well, whatever it was, 20 something, 30 years ago. My point is people have been saying despicable things, throwing things at people for years and years and years. And it's a really gross part of the American sports culture. And so there's a lot of gross parts of American culture. This is just kind of a little offshoot of it. And so basically we're either going to, you know, make it to where it is absolutely unacceptable or as we've done for generations, just kind of, you know, 
let it go. And hopefully we're, we're going to do the unacceptable thing because it's absolutely ridiculous. Well, the thing is like players, like regular people like clever, funny trash talk. Even yeah. If Trey it's a little, is balding was hilarious. Yeah. Even if it's a little biting, but players like that, like it's just, this is just how you have to get through life. We all know when we're arguing with someone in our lives, when we're having, whether it's a good nature argument or yeah. a heated argument, whether we're arguing with, y'all know where the line is. Like, to, you know where the line is. It's not that hard to figure out what's okay and what's not okay. And we all know that throwing things is not okay. Like, there, this, none of this is hard. Just right. behave like a normal person. It's not that hard. Yeah, and, and you know, people say, oh, with Russ, oh, it was just popcorn. What's the point of dumping popcorn on his head? A highly competitive, upset, agitated man. What are you trying to do? You're trying to start, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to just light a fire under this guy. Basically, you are willing to risk starting a malice at the palace type of riot because you're being an ass and because you think it's funny. So listen, now, the uh, I forget the exact charges. I don't have them in front of me that this dude in Boston's dealing with, but they're <laughs> it's a pretty serious charge. Dumping popcorn. And by the way, a, I don't know if the water bottle was full or empty. If but if it's full, it's going to hurt. Yeah. If it's full, that's that's actually going to hurt your face. Like a based lot, on maybe. how far that thing flew, there was some water in there. Um, but dumping pop, obviously, you know, dump. You're not going to harm a guy physically with popcorn. But it's at the minimum disorderly conduct. I firmly believe if you dump popcorn on on an athlete's head as he's walking in the tunnel that you should have to spend the night in the pokey and deal with the misdemeanor charge. I, I think that the accountability we need to start. And, and here's my other thing. I, if you are eject, I'm glad this Cole Buckley guy in Boston's name is out there. Just like I'm glad Don Nobler, the Mavericks fan who a few years ago said F your mother to, uh, to, to Patrick Beverly and got banned for the rest of the season. I'm glad his name, if you want to act like this, your name should be attached. And if there are consequences, and repercussions in, in your personal life, your professional life because of that, well, that's your own problem. I think if fan, I think there should be a, a, a list that's publicly available of fans who are ejected from arenas for you know whatever kind of gross conduct. I think there should be lists that are publicly available because that's part of accountability. Um, there is a, a now another separate Kyrie hullabaloo about his stomping. He did the Ric Flair boot stomp. Oh, on the no. Celtics leprechaun. Okay, so oh, I was going to ask is, for your is, take. Is, I've already is, gotten your is take. Is that leprechaun going to survive? Listen, that's a big, tough leprechaun. I think he's going to bounce back. Oh, my God. The other thing, that leprechaun is used to a bunch of large men running back and forth over him hundreds of times a day. Like, it's a freaking leprechaun. Who gives a crap? Oh, he so, stomped on the logo. Oh, no. He's being mean. So, what did he damn do? So, so I got you, your take is now on the record. I didn't even have to ask you for it. So, okay, let me zoom out for a second. I'm at least I'm trying to be empathetic, right? Okay, I'm trying to be empathetic, and so here's me being empathetic. I have to be aware that there are some people for whom that logo represents something important. Okay, it could represent Irish culture. It could represent. Bill Russell or Sam Jones or Casey Jones or Red Arback. By the way, his brother, Red Arback's brother, drew that logo. It's kind of an unknown part of Celtics history. And so stopping on it has some sort of larger, disrespectful, slanderous implications to all of those things. I just don't happen to conceive 
of a sports logo carrying those sorts of implications. All I see is a cartoon leprechaun and Kyrie Irving put his foot on its head. And I'll say this too. I'll bet you, and by the way, I say this as full disclosure, I grew up a Celtics fan. I, like, the, 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 like the green somewhere in my soul is still there somewhere, <laughs> even though I've beaten it out of myself. Um, uh, I'll say this. I'll bet you a lot of the people, now I don't know how many, but there's definitely some portion of the people who are up in arms about the clutching their pearls about Kyrie stomping on the logo. Won't someone think of the children like Reverend Lovejoy's wife in The Simpsons? Um, I bet some of them, if it were another player on another logo on another team, they would kind of think to themselves, it's kind of badass. Well, yeah, if Jason Tatum, if Jason Tatum scores 50 in Brooklyn and they, and they win game five and he goes and stomps on the logo. Oh, but wait, that's not a sacred logo. Don't lie to yourself. What's the list? Can we have the list of logos that are unstoppable? Please, let's 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 just make this list. I mean, give me a break. That is stomping on a logo is well within the bounds of fun trash talking. I want everyone to be honest with themselves. Don't you think it's a little bit cool? Like a little bit bad at like, isn't there a part of you, even if you don't like it, even if like you wouldn't do it, like I don't think I would do it. But isn't there a part of you that's like this is the same part of you that that identifies with the wrestling heel? Like it's kind of kind of bad. It's the same like when Terrell Owens st- stood on the star in Dallas. Oh, yeah. Like it was kind of badass. Now when the whoever wasn't there a what was George it Randy T. Ma- no, it was George George T. Oh, you're talking about the mooning thing? No, when yeah. when To did the logo thing though, George T. comes flying and look if uh if you know. Uh, Marcus Smart or somebody else wants to come flying in and push him off the logo. That's all fine and dandy, but you know Cole Buckley ain't going to help matters with his little uh, water bottle from Row Twenty Six. And by the way, you booed Kyrie. You, the Boston crowd, booed Kyrie the whole game. And by the way, I, any fine. fan base in that situation would do that because absolutely he, He's he verbally it. committed to the team and then he left. And 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 so any fans would do that. If you're going to do that, even if it's quote-unquote justified, even if you have a good reason for it, he gets to stomp on the logo after the game and it doesn't have to be a thing. You know what? And guess what? If for Rajon Rondo gets booed every time he touches the ball in Dallas, deservedly so. His little stint in Dallas was a complete disaster. You know, We don't have to relive all that. But if, if they close out game six and he wants to go dance on the Mavericks logo in the middle of the floor, that's all part of it. Whoop-dee now the Mavericks logo dude. is a horse. Is a horse. So is that disrespectful to horses? Um, <laughs> we is, we, there, we have had a horse-related playoff controversy actually in the Rondo I remember series. the, the Rockets yeah. Rockets Twitter put the horse out of its misery, and the guy got fired for that, didn't he? Yeah. It? So let's 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 be sensitive to the. Well, uh, are there are there the, how many anthropomorphic how many human and or animals logo logos are wait, there? What was that word? What anthropomorphic. Was word? How many? How that many? Like really like a lot disgusting. of them are just. A lot of them are just basketballs and words, so you can't disrespect those things. But no, so the Mavericks thing—it's not a. It's, I don't think they actually have the horse. They don't. It's know. like a style. Don't they have the stylized horse at the at center court? Well, it depends based on their uniforms, I guess. This uh, is anyways. my next column. This is my next column. Power <laughs> ranking the most disrespectful logo stomps possible in the NBA. Wait, and, and which Mavericks logo is most sacred? Is it the cowboy hat? Is it the stylized horse? I mean, boy, we. There's a lot to consider like, here. If you stomp on the dinosaur logo when the Raptors use that card, dinosaurs are extinct. Can I still disrespect dinosaurs even though they're <laughs> extinct? Let's, well, the wizards don't have the stupid bearded Gandalf anymore. 
The Bulls. Can you stop the Bulls logo? That could be – that's pretty hey, sacred. So, you stomp on the bull. You get the horns. You know what they say. Uh, there really aren't that many. Uh, anyway, we're, we're, let, let's talk about this. I, I, don't, I just can't summon any rage. about. If you liked Ric Flair, you can't summon any rage about Kyrie Irving. I'm sorry. It's just sports. No, is it disrespectful by Kyrie? Yes, absolutely. Intentionally and hilariously. Is, can Kyrie be a bit of an ass? Yeah, whoop de damn do. That doesn't mean you can say all kinds of filthy things and throw a water bottle at his head. And you know what? Hey, I enjoy the fact that he's embracing being the villain in Boston. You know, that's that's part of it. Trash talking. First of all, sportsmanship's the most overrated part of sports. Okay, so let's just oh class. Who gives a crap? Okay. But I will say they're, they're, I think the just handshaking. Don't the line. I think the handshaking after the Stanley Cup series, the hockey playoff series, when they shake hands, I think that's cool. Yeah, I don't think there are many logos that would be that disrespectful to stomp on. By the way, I just don't. Yeah, <laughs> you've done. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the standings right now, trying to think that they're just. I'm, not I'm anyway. waiting for your next your next column, sacred logo power rankings. For the ones who get it done. Granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call or click Granger.com or just stop by. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems with nothing. On your roof. So who's there up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, watch out for them. You name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Okay, let's talk about Mavs Clippers. You were in the house. Um, just an incredible turnaround by the Clippers who went small, starting Nick mm-hmm. Batum in place of Vita Zubas, so effectively playing Marcus Morris at center. They started Reggie Jackson in place of Patrick Beverly, which I think they needed for offense and playmaking because Patrick Beverly just wasn't bringing enough to the table on either end of the floor. It's something we suggested on the pod last week. Um, And just the small ball worked because they could switch everything and keep themselves out of rotations. They did a better job forcing Luka. Well, they they forced Luka into the same shots he made in games one and two. He just missed them. A lot of this was a make-miss situation, but they were better. And more importantly to me, Number one, their offense was unstoppable because they just they didn't waste possessions. They were on point with a purpose. There were there were very few Marcus Morris just tries to be Kobe Bryant for a yeah. couple of possessions, kind of wasted possessions. And defensively, Luca's gonna get his sometimes. Tim Hardaway yeah. is gonna make open threes, though he didn't make open threes in, in game four. Mm-hmm. They erased all of those breakdowns that I talked about at the opening. Uh, where the other guys on the Mavericks, the supporting players, got uncontested dunks, uncontested threes, uncontested layups because of just botched game plan stuff. Ty Lue said, we're going to get rid of it, we're going to erase it, and they did. And all of that has them back in this series. They're now plus 19 for the series. Luka's banged up. 
all the momentum is going toward the Clippers at home. No home team has won a game in this series. What what are you what did you see that struck you watching in person and and what if anything can the Mavs do here? Well, the, the first thing is Tyloo probably waited too long to commit to small ball. It, it didn't happen until Luca got off to the great start in game three. Then he pulled up Zubas, and, and it's been a different series since then. Um, but, you know, a, a lot of this also is just, look, the Mavericks won the first two games in large part because they had two kind of outlier shooting performances. And, you know, you, you I tweeted the quanti- – what is it? You know these nerdy terms. Quantified shot quality numbers. From uh, Basically, the I'm not going to bog you down with the stats. The point is the Mavericks way exceeded their expected field – or uh, you know, effective field goal percentage in the first two games. And then the last two games, the, the shot quality actually wasn't that different. It's just, it's just they, you know, hit at about a, a predictable clip. Um, Hardaway cooled off, and he he was an absolute superstar in the first two games. And by the way, he fell hard and and hurt himself a little bit, yeah. and then came back in the game. But that looked like it hurt in yeah. game four. Yeah, but he and they and they to their credit, they've made a point. We're running Hardaway off a three point line. Uh, they're not going to let Hardaway. They're not going to let Kleba get those clean looks. Maxie's struggling, man, and you know he's been dealing with the sore Achilles. Um, he's got to deal with Kawhi Leonard for thirty some odd. Uh, minutes and, and a night. Kawhi, every every game, and this happened last year in the playoffs too. Every game the series goes, Kawhi looks a little more comfortable Boy. getting to his spots against Maxi. And and a lot of times his spot is at the rim. Um, and and so your question is, what can they do? God, I don't know. Here's the problem. I think if you look, okay, what is the what's the weakest link on the Mavericks defense? Well, you can't address that because you're not pulling Chris Stapp's Porzingis from the starting lineup. But so you say, well, the Mavericks have to go small. Well, hold on. Going small, what's, what's that mean? You can't pull Porzingis and Maxi. as much as he's struggling, he's still your he's – he's not a great answer, obviously, but he's your best answer as far as trying to defend Kawhi. So what like – you can't. What are you gonna do? You're gonna put Josh Richardson in for Maxi. That's just gonna make bad worse. And so Porzingis is just uh, even last night. He put, he was okay offensively. He was fine. It was not like Game Three where he was a complete non-factor on that in the floor. But Porzingis is just an absolute bullseye in this series. His defense rate in the series is damn near 124. The last two games, it's 130.8, and it's just he's got no chance. In, in this you know spread floor small ball style he's an absolute bullseye but again what's the solution for that if you pulled Porzingis from the starting lineup I mean could you imagine what an absolute five alarm fire that would be it it would be interesting um that's for sure uh, but you nailed it. So so going back to the make-miss thing just for a second there was a sequence in game four where I just sort of laughed. And it was about seven minutes left in the second quarter. Tim Hardaway missed a wide open catch and shoot mm-hmm. three. And on the other end, Kawhi Leonard just dribbled up the court and shot a three and made it. And I was like, well, sometimes sometimes not your night, Dallas. So you nailed it. Small lineups have destroyed Dallas the entire season. Uh, if you look across the board, small lineups have killed the Mavericks because Porzingis can't guard anybody in small lineups. He has nobody to guard. He's just getting blown by. He's getting targeted on every possession. And so Dallas's answer in 
game four was we're not going to try to stop the small lineup. We're yeah. going to put Boban in to try and outscore the small lineup and try to hope Ty Lue panics and, and gets himself out of it. And Zubats came in the game when Boban right. came in the game. I just don't think... I, maybe Boban is more sustainable than I think. I just don't know if that's going to hold up defensively. They There is a world, to your point, they're not going to pull Porzingis because it's politically unpalatable. There is a world in which they could start super duper big with Porzingis and Boban and like play zone or something crazy like that. I just don't see that as happening. To your other point, you might go small and play Finney Smith at the four and Kleba at the five. Even if you can't start that lineup, just play it more. Well, I think but the, clip, the, I think the Clippers are going to outsmall you. The clip, the Clippers yeah. are going to outsmall you, though. That's the power of the Clippers. They're going to outsmall you. So there's no real great um, options here. Other And this was the big fear for the Mavs, is that the Clippers would play small and blitz you. And by the way, Porzingis can't defend in those lineups well enough. And the, the, and the dirty little secret of putting Boban in is Porzingis can't score well enough in those lineups no. to scare the Clippers either. That's why they put Boban in. Well, and that's the thing. Like, look, if if the Mavericks want to feed Porzingis a steady diet of post-ups, Ty Lue will probably grab some pom-poms and, and, and you know start doing the splits on the sideline. Like, that's exactly what the Clippers would love to see. And like you saw, it was weird because Rick Carlisle went on an anti-post-up rant uh, last season when you know the TNT commentators spent a whole game calling him out for not posting up Porzingis when Porzingis was averaging like 0. .56 points per post-up possession at that point that season. And so it was weird. In game three, Luca was resting early fourth quarter. And it was like three or four straight possessions. They went to Porzingis on the block. And it was like missed shot. He did kick it out to Brunson for a three turnover. His post up, like Porzingis posting up and getting shoved to about 15, 16 feet from the hoop, like and turning around and shooting a soft, uh, you know, jumper, like that's awful offense. And it's so that so he's not going to score non solution. He's not going to score in the post enough. I don't think he might have a hot game. You know, it's a short series. Like one hot game is all it takes to swing the whole narrative, but. That seems like a reach. He's not going to get pick and pop threes when when the Clippers are small because they're just going to switch. So mm -hmm. to me, I think he needs to start rolling a little bit more on the pick and roll. He got one post up where he rolled hard to the rim and Very then fed early. him the ball. Mm -hmm. I, I would I would like to see a little bit more of that. And we could talk a little and bit the, more. And the key, of, he, where did he catch that? He caught that. He deep. has to catch it deep. Again, if because on the roll, they don't have time to shove him off his spot. It's all about where he catches it. And the other thing is, look, he doesn't like it, but he might just have to go stand 30 feet from the hoop and space the floor. That might be the best use of Chris Tapp's Porzingis on the offensive end. But um, the problem is yeah. there's no good use of him defensively. And by the way, Paul George after game three just kind of casually saying, yeah, they don't have any rim protector, so we're just going to – we're just attacking, attacking, attacking. Like they've got a seven-foot-three dude in the starting lineup, and he's just casually saying they have no rim protection, and he's not wrong. Uh, to your earlier point – in 153 minutes with Luca on the floor, the Mads are plus nine for the series. In 39 minutes with Luca on the bench, they're minus 28. So they're just getting smoked whenever Luca's on the bench. Flip side, I love the Rajon, the Rajon Rondo, Terrence Mann, <laughs> up duo that the Clippers are Dang, bringing you off the bench. That? Well, it's going to get beeped. Um, <laughs> and, and by the way, all the people who said the Clippers were stupid for trading for Rondo. Look at the numbers. Lou Williams better than Rondo. Rondo has already proven that the trade was was worth it. 
the the are you ready for this? In 89 minutes with Rondo on the floor, the Clippers are plus 41. The Rondo screening for Kawhi won game three for the Clippers in Dallas. And then they reversed it where Rondo was the ball handler and Kawhi was screening for him in game four. They got success out of that. He just brings pace and IQ that they really, really need. And and so far in this series, it's worked. And I and man has given them an injection of just urgent effort, crashing the glass, running the floor. I love that they, they, they've often had them coming together like a tag team coming in. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, it's really going to be fun to see how, how Dallas responds now in L.A. Are they, what, what else can we maybe look for out of the Mavs? Well, look, the most important people for the Mavericks in the next couple of days are their massage therapist and, and their training staff because it ain't like the Mavericks played shutdown defense in, uh, in L.A. and they were able to get two wins. And, you know, game three was at least a game. Why? Because Luka Doncic was absolutely superhuman in those games. So very clearly, Luka has to be MVP caliber for the Mavericks to uh, have a chance to win a a game in the series. And that's kind of difficult to do when it is just excruciatingly painful to look to your left. And, Zach, I know you love – I'm a fan of these passes. I know you love them too – I call them the LeBron lasers when he's high on the right wing and just fires that right in the shooter's pocket to the opposite corner. He did one of those in the second quarter last night, and in right after he threw it, doubled over in pain. It's like, I mean, if he if he can't make those pass, and uh, you know the fact he got up twenty four shots and you know was was played thirty six minutes last night is pretty impressive considering the dude's dealing with a nerve issue. If if his if he can't be superhuman Luca, then you know the Mavericks can start booking beach resort reservations for next week. Well, um, he also, I think one of the ways you could tell that he was hurting a little bit last night was, particularly in the second half as the game was getting away from them, he just walked out of possessions after giving up the ball yeah. with 15 on the shot clock, he would just let the Clippers deny him. He wouldn't try to get back into the possession. And that's exactly what the Clippers want. The Clippers are dying for Luka to give up the ball, hard ball deny, and he just gives up and stops trying. And he started to do that here and there in the second half. There was also one possession where he set a screen for Josh Richardson. And I was like, what in the world is – like, there, Luka is screening for Josh Richardson. Like, Josh Richardson takes a floater that I think hits only the backboard. I'm like, man, this is this is not a good sign. So a couple of things I would like from Dallas is – we mentioned some. Um, they had a couple of sets where Luka started in the corner, ran off yep. one screen, and then ran into a handoff. I know it's hard to do. I know it's super hard work. Um but just to get him a little bit of a head start now and then is so helpful. And he would turn those into really good layups around around the rim. I also wonder if the Clippers are going to be switching everything. The one guy of their wings who has had trouble staying in front of Luka is Marcus Morris, who finally started to make shots. I wonder if they can maybe hunt that matchup a little bit and see if the Clippers will give it to him and see if Luka can do anything with it. Because he was able to just roast Marcus Morris uh, in the first two games. Honestly, he's, he was able to, to roast Paul George too. I think I think when Luca's right, he's a little too strong for Paul George. Um, and he actually had some success against Kawhi in the first couple games. But you know, as, as we talked about, Kawhi basically has gotten into uh, <laughs> no, I'm going to dominate both ends of the floor, uh, Kawhi type of stuff. But yeah, Marcus Morris is 
is that and you know Zubas was was the biggest target in the first couple games and and Ty Lue has made that adjustment I think Marcus Morris is a guy Luca definitely looks at as 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 food uh you know Reggie Jackson but the Clippers are are definitely being more selective with their switching, which is they were surprisingly soft with that in the first couple games, and and the Mavericks took advantage. Luca took advantage. It was just again, it's it's the drama of the series and the back and forth, and the Clippers summoning something that, frankly, I mean, I I I had Dan Wojcik on the pod last week. I said, mm-hmm. what they probably have a 20, 25 percent chance yeah. of winning. Which, by the way, when you're down 0-2 after losing at home, the percentages are much worse than that. So I was giving them some respect, but I did not expect them to come back like this. Well, and it was 30-11 game three. You felt like it was about a 2% chance. Oh, you know? people were tweeting, contract the Clippers, relegate yeah, the Clippers, send, send move the Clippers to Seattle. To Seattle. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it was, it's really just an unbelievable turnaround. And, and they'll have other adjustments that we don't see. I mean, they could even play. Going into the season, I thought their best lineup was going to be Hardaway, Richardson, Luca Finney Smith Porzingis or one of their best lineups. And that's where they that's where they started and it just was not a good it, it failed. Good. It failed. We we might see a little bit more of that if Maxi's banged up. I picked Clippers in six. I didn't expect it to go like this. And one of the reasons I picked Clippers in six was I just I just kept hearing murmurs that Maxi was was, you know, yeah. his health was a little shaky. Otherwise I like this matchup for the Mavs, but the Clippers going small has been a game changer and uh and now we're back to LA. How was the crowd in Dallas? Uh, fortunately, incident-free, uh, largely mask-free, but certainly rowdy. Uh, I mean, there it was seventeen thousand plus. Uh, you know, it. I mean, it it definitely felt like good old-fashioned playoff type of basketball. You know, playoff vibes. Um, <laughs> didn't help the Mavericks a whole lot though. No, it didn't. All right, Tim McMahon, it's always great to have you on. It's always great to see you. Um, continue to read his stuff covering this series and everything else. Mr. McMahon, good luck. All right, appreciate you, brother. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Shopping for Mother's Day is usually a challenge because you wait until the last minute. Shame on you, by the way. But Macy's Gift Finder makes it incredibly fast and easy to find the right gift just in time for Mother's Day. Whether you're shopping for your sister's first Mother's Day or your fashionista mom who loves to make a statement, Macy's Gift Finder has so many great gift ideas, you can easily pick out something special to celebrate the both. You can shop by price anywhere from 25 bucks and under to 100 bucks and under. You can also sort by category like fragrance, handbags, more, or gift lists like for the mom who has everything pre-wrapped gifts, gifts for grandma. You can find top brands like Studio Pro Model Beats headphones, Polaroid cameras, and Samsung Smart TV. So what are you waiting for? Mother's Day is May 12th. That's very soon. It'll be here before you know it. Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for your mom easy this year. Head to macy's.com slash gift finder today. That's macy's.com slash gift finder. All right, to continue our 
traipse around the NBA playoff landscape. Let's bring in our killer Lakers reporter, Dave McMenamin, to talk all things Lakers, Suns, and frighteningly enough, Anthony Davis's injury and Contavious Caldwell-Pope's injury. Mr. McMenamin, how are you this morning out in L.A.? I'm doing okay. I feel like this is an extension of what the season has been, though. Come on off all the momentum they had seemingly built with those wins in games two and three and game four, and we're back to all of the question marks that were really consuming this season for the Lakers from March, or I guess late February through uh, the end of April, where you were like, there is a group of players on this roster that could be considered an NBA championship group. But if those players aren't healthy at the same time, you better turn the page till next year. What's the latest on AD? Woj reported day-to-day, unclear if he's going to play Game 5. I assume that remains the case as of now at noon Eastern time. Yeah, that's the same information I have right now. A Lakers source told me yesterday when I asked, hey, AD wasn't all that good in the 19 minutes he played in the first half before he got hurt. If he is at that level, if he even get to that level, would you want him playing in game five and the source told me any ad is better than no ad so it it seems to me the thinking would be if they can get anthony davis to 50 percent or whatever the number would be uh, where he felt comfortable without suffering further injury he'll be in the lineup but that's just conjecture because we'll see if his body will even allow him to get up and down the court I'd feel better about the NEAD thinking if his jumper had been working better this season. It just hasn't been working well enough. And having said that, because it's the Lakers and because LeBron will be passing to him, I bet now AD is going to have – I mean, he hit some big threes in what was it, game two? I think in mm-hmm. Phoenix, maybe game three. I can't remember. He had a, he had, I think it was game two. Um, because that would be the sort of like – at the very least, you can stand around and space the floor and shoot jumpers, right? Like, even if you're athletically limited, you can play defense and do that. So, I mean, like, let's not beat around the bush. There are injuries, and then there are injuries. This is a capital I injury. This is the whole championship contention status of the Lakers is now riding on Anthony Davis. Because LeBron is beginning to look, look more like LeBron. I have no idea how that's happening because I talked to a bunch of sports scientists, and it was like 50-50, 75-25. Like, that's just not an injury that's going to get better until he just takes a bunch of time off, which is obviously mm-hmm. not an option. And yet and, and yet, in Game 3, he's humiliating Jay Crowder on national television and looking like LeBron. And, and by the way, in, in Game 4, I can't – no, I wasn't there. You were there, so I want to hear your perspective on it. But from watching on, on TV, I can't remember a game – turning that's an exaggeration but that game turned from even when it was close in the second quarter it just felt like an inevitable Lakers win like LeBron when LeBron breaks out the freight train left to right spin which you have written about and when Caruso is throwing passes off the backboard to him and when Chris Paul can't do anything and when Devin Booker's out of the game the Suns have no offense it just felt like yeah it's a four-point game the Lakers are going to win by 12 I've seen this movie a hundred times then Anthony Davis doesn't come out of the locker room and the Suns roll them in the second half. It was like this, what what just happened? Did, did it feel like that in the arena? Like just so, It didn't seem like it had a lot of juice even in game two. It was just going to be like a Lakers win. Yeah, on top of that, you had 
Wesley Matthews starting in place of Contavious Caldwell-Pope, hitting his first three. Ben McLemore getting some minutes over Talon Horton-Tucker in the rotation. Him hitting two threes. One of them, an incredible pass from LeBron where he's airborne. Looks like he has no nothing to do in that position other than get called for a travel. He's going to come back down to the floor with the ball. He throws behind the back bounce pass right into McLemore's pocket. Marcus Hall minutes were working. So it was like all the pieces coming together, momentum's there, home crowd, 8,000 fans, the most fans they've had all season long. They're building it by 500 to 1,000 a game. They're going to ride this momentum, be up 3-2. Chris Paul's hurt. Okay, Lakers on to the second round as long as they get one more win. And it all started to unravel. And now it did unravel in the second quarter while Davis was still in the game. So it wasn't like no Anthony Davis. It's completely black and white. Um, He was still on the floor when the Suns started to make their rally and took a four-point lead in the halftime. But the series feels a lot different uh, walking out of the arena in the fourth quarter uh, after the fourth quarter than it did when we're watching in the second. And by the way, all the focus on AD's injury is a huge deal, obviously. What a gutsy performance by Chris Paul. An absolute all-time Chris Paul game, considering that he clearly does not want to shoot threes at all. The Lakers are not guarding him on threes. In fact, they're guarding him almost like Russell Westbrook at times where Devin Booker comes off a screen, like comes off a pin down on the wing. Chris Paul up top, his man is on top of Devin Booker. They're not paying any attention to Chris Paul. And yet he finds a way to hit a couple of jump shots. And then that deflection he had in, in a steal late in the game when Marcus Sol ran a pick and pop, yep. he rotated over and deflected the pass. And so I was like, there's just, there's five guys in the NBA who are going to make that play in that moment. And maybe two who are going to make that play with one arm. And Chris Paul is one of them. And it just sucks that this just happens over and over again. This is like, it's now the third paragraph of Chris Paul's career wrap up is going to mention playoff injuries, but credit him. That was like a, I don't want to use the word legendary lightly, but that fourth quarter was, was because Devin Booker has not been lighting it up this series. He's shooting 40% for the series. That was an incredible fourth quarter from CP. Because he keeps getting to his spots, and the Lakers were playing off of him, knowing that he wasn't going to shoot threes. And so rather than go for that open shot, he'd penetrate more, maybe dish the wing, get it back. And then that little fadeaway he has in the mid-range area, you're not going to guard it. And and for whatever reason, I wonder if it, it doesn't cause the same discomfort that his normal shooting motion does, because it, it looked as regular as any shot we've seen him take since game one when he had the collision with Cameron Johnson. Like he was able to have the same flow, same body cadence to get that little fade away from the eight to 12 feet area off. And, and he made a few of them and obviously he was the ball distributor that he normally is nine assists with zero turnovers. And, in a way, this stat kind of stuck out to me after the game. It was a historical game. It's not one that we'll probably look back at as a classic, but it was the first time in league history in any game, regular season or playoffs, where two players on opposing teams aged 35 or older led their team in points and assists. All right. Chalk one up for the NBA fogies. All right. <laughs> never never happened before. I mean, which says – I think mostly – the singular greatness of both LeBron and Chris Paul, but sports science, and, and maybe this is something we'll see happen again in the future. 
when you really felt his limitations um, when Booker was off the floor. And what's interesting about this series is LeBron's rotations and Booker's rotations are totally different. So we have a bunch of minutes when LeBron is on the floor and Booker's off the floor and vice versa. The Lakers were destroying, have been destroying Phoenix in the LeBron on Booker off minutes. And that's when you really feel CP just doesn't have the juice to kind of carry them the way he did in the regular season where they were so good in those minutes. And, and one smart adjustment I thought Monty Williams made is Aiton has been maybe their best player in the whole series. And he started staggering Aiton and Booker. Like the whole focus this season has been staggering Paul and Booker. And with Paul limited, he decided in game four, maybe in game three, but I think in game four, I need Aiton on the floor when Booker is off the floor. I thought that was really smart. Let's talk about the what if of AD doesn't play. Do we expect them to start Kuzma? And so they basically start LeBron at the four and start small? Like, or do we expect, Do some people have suggested starting Mark Gasol over Drummond. That seems like a little bit of an overreaction, although I love Mark. Um, what what do you expect? I think Kuzma's a, a pretty good guess. I, I would say Kuzma or Morris would be the direct, and I would see them going versus moving Drummond off that spot. They've been so committed to him being the, ceremonial starter and obviously he gets more than just ceremonial minutes but that seems to be something that is important to drummond which makes it important to the lakers front office because they have signaled to everyone listening that this isn't just a half a season buyout market rental andre drummond's part of the future moving forward with this franchise and so that's always a tough one though because when you are trying to make moves to think about the future rather than win in the moment, uh, it's hard to do both simultaneously as well as you possibly can. And Drummond's been okay this series. He's been fine. Uh, He's two, been fine. Game two, he was actually very good. Um, and, and the rest of the series, he's been okay. Uh, you usually pretty much never unless someone gets injured going to win or lose a game in the first six minutes anyway so you could keep him as a starter but I, I think it's interesting the ad minutes how you distribute them and kuzma has been active this series his shot just is it's disappeared I, and and it, it's it's tough to see because i've now covered him for three years and the kuzma that i originally covered was a gunner and a scorer and had tremendous offensive confidence and now it's not like he's looks like he's like a shrinking lily. Is that the term? I feel like it's a I believe it's a vi- I believe it's a violet that is supposed <laughs> to shrink. Violet. I don't know okay. why that is actually. I don't know if vi- do vi- I don't know anything about flowers. Violets, I guess, shrink. Lilies. A wilting I- lily. Is it a wilting lily? I don't know, Dave. I don't know. Okay, sure. But I'm it's not. not like- I'm not in charge of any flowers at our house, and I'm never going to be. I just think feel you like the bottom line is terms. what you're saying is that Kuzma is three of sixteen from three and four of thirteen from two, and I'm my brain hurts too much to do the percentages, but those seem quite bad. They're bad, and I don't think it's a confidence issue though. I, I'm just not sure what it is—a rhythm or what whatnot. But they could sure use a twenty-two points on seven for twelve shooting or something like that from Kyle Kuzma. Now. If AD is out, that means the Lakers are probably going to play the entire game with only one big man on the floor, right? So it's going to be Drummond. It's going to be, I think, Trez should should get minutes. 
I think whenever LeBron is resting, they need both Schroeder and Trez on the floor just to like just create some offense, just manufacture some points, run around, get some offensive rebounds, and then it's going to be Gasol at the five. Those are the three alignments. And I think the only bright side of that is you just have to run LeBron's spread pick and roll over and over and over and over again. Now, depending on who's on the floor, that can take different forms. In the starting lineup, I just like LeBron Drummond. Just spam LeBron Drummond pick and roll. There's no great answer for that other than, and other than Phoenix's defense is really good at helping and recovering. When it's Trez, same thing. Trez spread, just roll, 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 rim, run, rim, run, rim, run. When it's Gasol, you got to get a little more creative. You can go Schroeder, LeBron, and let Gasol space, right? You can put the Schroeder, LeBron, two-man game. The problem is another really smart adjustment by Monty. Um, as soon as AD went out, Crowder went on to LeBron, and Mikhail Bridges went on to Schroeder so that they could switch that two-man game. So then LeBron's got to hunt with bring Wes Matthews up for a screen, bring Caruso up for a screen. That's that and whatever bully ball LeBron has in him, their hope for this series is that LeBron just dominates for 40 minutes, controlling the ball and controlling every single possession, a lot of it in the pick and roll, and that in the other eight minutes, they just survive. Yeah, they just can't fall off the map. Because I think for the series, the Lakers are something – like plus 37 when LeBron's been on the court and minus 33 when he's been off it. And so that, that works out to almost even over four games. Uh, but you, you want to have a, a better number in his resting minutes. And he'll push his limits, I imagine, in game five. You know, I've seen him literally play all 48 minutes of a playoff game, and that was pre-ankle sprain and pre-groin tear and four years ago when he was a younger man. But – He'll, I'm sure, push it as, as long as he can go. But Frank Vogel, you know, we'll, we'll work in some some breaks for him. Schroeder has been an interesting player this series so far because with LeBron not really driving all that much in the first couple of games. Now, last night, according to our stats and information group, he had the most drives he had all season, even pre-Solomon Hill diving on his leg like he was, I don't know, I need an analogy here. Fill me in. And I it, can't think of another flower analogy. Sorry, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, that he he was trying to uh, break up a petunia bed, but uh, wow, he, you came through with the flower analogy. <laughs> uh, Schroeder had done a really good job of getting to the paint in the absence of LeBron doing that, and the Lakers coaching staff thinks it's so important to get those paint touches. Uh, Frank Vogel even has like a little pet term. He says paint to great uh, because he believes that once you get there, you're either going to score or get fouled or spray it out to open shooters. And Schroeder's been able to do that, but he didn't have his strongest game in game four. And listen, he has as much pressure, I think, as just about any player on the roster here because he turned down a, a really healthy offer from the Lakers, which – also contributed to this regular season of theirs going sideways. It led to the Lakers exploring trade options that would have included him. He had the uh, health and safety protocol at the, the worst timing uh, for the Lakers season. And um, this is a big moment where they, they could use Dennis Schroeder to look like a type of player who wants to command $30 million a year. He hasn't looked super interested in shooting threes. And one thing that I'm interested to see if Phoenix does, it's not really in the DNA of how they play defense, but on the times when anybody but LeBron is running pick and roll, so especially if they use LeBron as a screener. So you've got Caruso handling, 
shrewder handling. We even saw Kuzma run a few pick and rolls in, in game four. I wonder if they'll just duck under picks and say, we're staying out of rotations. We dare you guys, Caruso, Schroeder, Kuzma, beat us with jump shots. See if you can do it. I think I would try that if I if I were Phoenix. The other thing is, it's kind of been under-discussed in this series amid all the injuries and the drama and everything, the scrums, the kerfuffles, the Crowder, the Crowder incidents. There are multiple. The mimicking on the bench of what LeBron was doing to Crowder, uh, which, by the way, you better win the series if you're going to do that because yeah. that was some straight-up clowning, and now it it's 2-2. The Lakers have been really sloppy with the ball. They are last in turnover rate in the playoffs. LeBron is averaging almost five turnovers a game, and there's been a lot of just like, where is he throwing that pass? Or he throws a pass and someone cuts the other way. Like, they got to cut that out. It's been a little bit strange, honestly, some of these turnovers. Yeah, he had six turnovers in, in game four, and – he likes to put him in two categories. He has his attack turnovers that he claims he's okay with, and sometimes that would be like an offensive foul where it's a judgment call, uh, but he is going with the head of steam, and that's what he should be doing. Or he is, whatever, like it feels like he's making the right play, and then the, the defense just happens to, to pick yeah. it off, or it goes off the guy's hands or whatever, versus – just the misreads. And there's been a lot of misreads. Uh, the, the, the type of passes where it's sailing to no one and he has as good of court sense as any person I've ever seen play in the league. And so that, that'll that help them because as good as the Lakers are defensively against this Suns team that they can get up and down, uh, the Lakers transition defense isn't their number one part of, of their defensive package. And it puts them in situations where they had to get back on their heels and then, okay, you could allow them to get a open bucket or you're going to foul them. And then once you get into foul trouble, you get to your bench. And, you know, there's such a domino effect there that that begins with taking care of the basketball. Yep. They got to be a little more careful with it. The Phoenix is too good to squander all these possessions with needless turnovers. I also wonder if without Davis, if he doesn't play, if we might see Saric again. Because I just think I just think Saric is better than Frank Kaminsky. I, I've never really gotten that. Frank Frank Kaminsky is going to be all right for Phoenix. I just think Saric is better. Um, and the other thing is, even if Anthony if Anthony Davis does play, then we'll see the normal rotations. But I, I just think I still don't think the Lakers do enough of um, whether Anthony Davis is at center or whenever Aiton is on Anthony Davis, just run spread pick and roll between LeBron and AD and have him dive to the rim. You're going to get a good shot every time. Their spacing has been a little cluttered. Like they've had guys hanging around the dunker spot here. I just feel like sometimes the Lakers and LeBron just need to keep it a little simpler and just do the easy stuff. But it's easy for me to say from the outside. Um, it This is this series has been a slog, man. Just great defense blah offense and I don't know what's it's hard to predict what's going to happen because we don't know what they I think if AD is available the Lakers are going to pull this out but boy oh boy this is this has become yeah, perilous I think, I think you had to look at game five with a very real possibility of not seeing Anthony Davis on the court and if that's going to occur then you have to look at the very real possibility of the Lakers being down three two headed home for game six and can they win two in a row uh would that buy enough time for Anthony Davis to, to get right an extra two days to rehab it when he's already dealing with a knee sprain? Possibly. And so say you win a game six and you got to win on the road. And, and I haven't 
been traveling this season because of what's going on in the world, but I, I have traveled uh, to game two of this series. I'll be at game five. Game two felt like being in an NBA arena in 2015. It was loud and it was wild and I didn't have to have any proof of vaccination or proof of negative test to get in. And everyone, uh, you directly were supposed to be wearing a mask, but as long as you had a drink in your hand or uh, a burger in your other hand, like you didn't need to be having a mask. Like it felt like a loud home court advantage. And that for a game seven for a franchise that hasn't had a playoff run in 11 years, that's like a legitimately tough environment to try to win a game. And I, I think the Lakers are in, in, in a pickle here. And historically we say LeBron James is 14 and no all time in the first round. And, and that's wonderful. And, and, who's going to doubt those credentials, but uh, the, the Suns have a star who has figured out a way to play through an injury in this series. And, and the Lakers right now have a star who couldn't play in the second half of a crucial game because of his injury. Well, game five is on Wednesday. So ADs, they, they have two days off now, which is big for them. Yeah, I agree with you. I could see them thinking we'll try to win game five on the road without AD. If we lose, we have game six at home, and then we take our chances with LeBron in game seven if we win game six at home. I, I could see that thinking. We'll see. All right, Mr. McMenamin, enjoy uh, Phoenix. Um, I guess don't bring your proof of vaccination. It's not necessary to get into. Not, Are not they still talk, talking stick resort presented by no. Robert Sarver Incorporated? What are they? They're actually just Phoenix Suns Arena, which I, I'm sure comes down to some idea of we – if going to sell this sponsorship, it has to reach a certain dollar amount. But wouldn't you want anything over nothing? I might want nothing. Let's forget these this corporate gobbledygook. Let's just call it the name it after Cotton Fitzsimmons or something like that. Well, then I don't do know. that then. But don't call it Phoenix Suns Arena. I don't mind it. I don't mind it. It's what it is. It's I, the Phoenix Suns Arena. Let's go ultra oh, literal with so it. The place lame. where this the place where the Phoenix Suns play. Let's just call it that. Well, that I would actually kind of. Uh, have a twinkle in my eye about, but Phoenix Suns Arena is so lame. All right, Mr. McMenamin, thank you, sir. All right, thanks, Zach. All right, let's wrap this traipse around the NBA up by going east, and ironically, we're going far west to talk to ESPN's Kevin Pelton about Knicks Hawks, and maybe, maybe a preview of a big, big, big series that maybe has some chance of being the real NBA Finals. I don't know. I'm afraid to say that out loud. Kevin Pelton, how are you? I'm doing well. Able to go either conference. So versatile like that. That's why I like to have you on. I know you're watching every game. You're taking notes on every game. And uh, and and I know you can talk in an educated way about every series. Let's talk a little bit about Knicks Hawks. Just because, why not? It's 3-1 Hawks after two easy wins at State Farm Arena. And I'll just throw it to you. What has struck you about the way that the Hawks have just wrested control of this series from New York and put the Knicks on the brink of, at the end of a very nice season, but still on the brink? I mean, I think the the main thing still, and you know, maybe we'd internalize this after games one and two, even though the, the Knicks got a split of those two at MSG, is just Trey Young continuing to answer every question about his playoff performance against the top five defense during the regular season. I mean, this isn't the ultimate test here. And, you know, the Knicks, there's certainly more that they could do probably to pick at him, pick on him at the defensive end of the court than they've been doing so far. But, you know, the idea that you were going to be able to game plan 
away from him because of his size and his difficulty, you know, making plays without the ball during the regular season. And that was going to be a problem from the playoffs. That, that's definitely answered and it's answered in the negative. The Hawks are plus 31 with Trey Young on the floor, minus 10 and 51 minutes when he sits. And he's just been fantastic. Even when the shooting numbers haven't been as great as you'd think, I think I think my favorite thing about his play in this series has been he's making the right passes, right? So so for years this idea that Trey Young is hunting assists has dogged him. And I think he's played less like that this year. And in this series, even when his teammates are missing, he's getting off the ball early when they put two on him, which they're not doing very much. They're letting him drive in the lane and take floaters, and he's so good at that. Then you're like, okay, fine, whatever. Get some offensive rebounds for Capella. Todd Gibson has done a fantastic job playing two at the same time and, and not com- conceding the lob. But when they put two on him, when they pressure him, he's kicking it to the next guy on the wing and just saying, Bogey, you make a play. Herder, you make a play. John Collins, you take a three. He's trusting his teammates, even if it's three passes down the line when the shot goes up. And I think that was the most important step for this team to reach the next level was just get the ball moving, get off the ball. And he's answered that question resoundingly. Even when they've been missing, I've just been really happy with the passes he's making. Absolutely. He's taking advantage of the attention the Knicks are paying to him. And I go back to, you know, the summer league after he was drafted, the first couple months of his rookie season when his shots weren't falling. And, you know, the thinking was, can he still be successful even if he's not a particularly efficient scorer in the NBA? And I thought he could because his playmaking was just that good, that special. And then the shots started falling the second half of his rookie season, and he became this dominant scorer going into his second year, his first time as an all-star. And, you know, that kind of got overshadowed, I think, his passing ability. And now it's coming back to the forefront in this series in particular. He's an incredible passer, both hands. All angles. He's got every for a guy that size to have the the depth of and breadth of passes that he has access to is very unusual. Um, the other thing is you mentioned his off ball movement and look, it's just it's not going to be there the way all of us idealists would like it to be there. We've all been spoiled by Steph Curry. He's not going to be Steph Curry. Not even Dame Lillard moves off the ball like Steph Curry. But even as the Hawks ran away in Game Four. One of the things I I think Nate McMillan has coached a nice series. We could talk about that. One of the things I liked was the Knicks put Derrick Rose on Bogdanovich because I think they're afraid of Derrick Rose just tiring out underneath this menace burden that he's facing as the starter. They took him off Trey Young. And Nate McMillan very smartly said, you can, you can guard Bogdanovich. We're running your ass through lots of stuff using Bogey as a ball handler, even if it means Trey's got to be off the ball a little bit more. Not only that... We're going to make Trey be active off the ball by calling those double Spain stack pick and rolls, whatever, and having Trey Young be the back screener for Capella while Bogdanovich is the ball handler. And then Trey can kind of fly out and veer out. They got open threes. They got open looks. They got a lob to Collins, I think, out of that action. I thought that was very smart. And if, I, if I'm Dave McMillan, if Derrick Rose is on Bogdan Bogdanovich, I am tilting 10 to 15% more of my offense to Bogey whether it's running them off screens, running them through pick and roll. I am exhausting Derrick Rose, who has not faced a minutes burden like this in a long time. I think that was really smart. 
it's the vision that they had for Bogdanovich coming into this season, which, you know, unfortunately was never able to be realized under Lloyd Pierce because of the injuries he had early in the year, but has since Nate McMillan took over, where it's both the ability to run the offense when Trey Young is off the court, and that's been an important adjustment after they went away from that in game two, uh, making sure that they have one of those two guys on the court at all times, and then also the ability to play either on or off the ball next to Trey Young and just give them so many options, so many choices, and that's what you thrive on in the playoffs is having those options. And the other the other thing you mentioned is I think the other really smart adjustment was they basically mothballed Tony Snell, who I don't think has missed a shot the entire year, but still doesn't <laughs> do that much for you. And when Trey is off on the bench now, they're playing pretty powerful lineups in his stead. So the the go to one the last couple of games has been Lou Will, Kevin Herter, Bogdanovich, Gallinari, Capella. That's a really good lineup. That lineup is plus 17 and 15 minutes. So they're basically like when Trey's out, we're throwing the kitchen sink of like everything but Trey at you and and that has been another smart adjustment and look we could talk about what the Knicks can do going forward but this is why you have home court advantage right like it feels like they're in this insurmountable hole they still have to win run one road game that's it they have games five and seven at home this is it's 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 obvious but we get caught up in three one three one means something different when you don't have home court when you have home court it doesn't feel like the Knicks have a chance because these losses have been so lopsided. But the two games at MSG were very close. You get game five, you got to at least make the Hawks earn it at home under some pressure, knowing that game seven is looming. Like this is, it feels over, but it's not over. And that's the power of home court. Yeah, I mean, one game can flip a series dramatically in terms of then all of a sudden the pressure is on Atlanta to make sure they close out in that game six and don't get back to, I mean, I don't know how the Garden gets louder than it was in the first two games, but if there is a game seven, presumably there's another level. I guess it goes up to 11 at that point. I did want to look up, that I was curious about this uh, after last night's state of, slate of games and after the, uh, the Clippers-Mavericks series continued to be the road court advantage throughout that one. The home court advantage so far when you adjust for you know who's been who's had the home games and the fact that there's been a few more for the good teams before we get to these game fours tonight in Washington and Memphis it's been about 1.3 points per game so that's that's way down from normal postseasons even though it feels more much more what, normal. what's normal like four three or four yeah because you know it's about three in the regular season often and then it goes up from there in the playoffs that's interesting well you know look the road teams are bringing it. That Mavs Clipper series I just talked about with Tim is is absolutely wild. I want to get on something you talked about before, which is the idea that um, the Knicks are not hunting Trey Young enough. I picked the Hawks to win this series, and in my preview with David Thorpe, one of the things I said was I just don't think the Knicks are well equipped to hunt Trey Young the way some other teams are, and. That has borne out. And look, the Knicks are trying, particularly in game four, they tried. They tried to, and we can talk about some of the ways they tried uh, to bring Trey Young into the action. The problem is Trey Young's guarding Reggie Bullock, who doesn't dribble. And so he's hedging. Like when you run a Randall Bullock pick and roll or a Rose Bullock pick and roll, it works occasionally, whatever, you get a switch. He's hedging and recovering, and Reggie Bullock catches the ball with a head of steam, and he can't do anything with it because he doesn't dribble. And so it's way easier to just say, well, they should run Trey Young through 100 pick and rolls. They should treat him like LeBron treats Steph Curry. They don't have LeBron. Julius Randle has never had a ball handling responsibility at this level. He's never been asked to be LeBron James in sort of a predatory pick and roll way. RJ Barrett 
is just not ready for that. And that's fine. This is his second year. In the regular season, the Knicks ran 22 pick and rolls with Barrett as the ball handler per 100 possessions. That's down to 10 in this series. They clearly do not have faith. I actually think they should give him some more some more reps at that. Like they had one play down the right sideline in game four where they just sort of ran an improvised pick and roll for him involving Trey and they got a switch and they got an open three out of it. Um, and they've had some stray post-ups like RJ Barrett and Alec Burks have both had like maybe two post-up baskets on Trey Young when they found that matchup. But it's much easier to say, hunt Trey Young, hunt Trey Young, hunt Trey Young. The Knicks, it's just, it's as long as Bullock is out there and it, even like Alec Burks has been awesome quickly has moments like those guys just aren't scaring you as as guys that you can put Trey Young on and it, they're just not equipped to do it really unless Barrett takes another level as a ball handler and I would like to see him get more reps I mean I think Bullock is an example of the the truism that the regular season is more about your strengths than the playoffs is more about your weaknesses in the regular season had an awesome year, was a key part of that defense, uh, matching up with you know opponents' best wing scores, knocking down open threes, just that classic 3 and D role player. But the element that's often missing in that classic 3 and D role player is the ability to make plays with the ball in your hands, and that's being exposed in this series. So I, I mean, I do think that going Burks for Bullock is the the one card that Tibbs has left to play. I mean, it, it tilts them awfully heavily in terms of putting all of their offense in the starting lineup. And then I, I don't know what you do, you know, with those second units, how you figure out how to stagger those guys to make sure that you have some shot creation in the lineup. But and they've already know, started staggering Rose and Randall in the last game and a half for, for that reason. They figured Tibbs has figured I can't have both those guys on the bench. But Trey Young has played 84 minutes with Alec Burks on the bench in this series. And the Hawks are plus 30 in those minutes. They're plus one in the 57 minutes that Trey has played with Burks on the court. So I think you just have to go to that as your starting lineup to, you know, force Trey Young to defend someone who is a legitimate offensive threat. And I just think you need a little more variety than they've shown, which is you just can't give the ball to Randall on the right wing and say, go do something. And, and they've shown, like I thought in game four, you know, they would run a Reggie Bullock ball screen and then have him run off a flare screen. Like, make Trey Young get through two screens instead of one, and maybe something else opens up. Get Barrett coming from the corner at high speed around two different screens, one of which involves Trey Young, and see what happens. Give Randall a head start somehow. Push the pace. Like, they started getting a little more variety into it. It just might be too late, and the talent deficit is, is real. The other thing, um, I really liked also... The, the matchups with the Hawks in this series defensively have been really interesting. Where they put Hunter, where they put Collins. And and starting in game two, and especially in game three and four, we've seen more and more Hunter on Derrick Rose. And I thought that that was a really smart adjustment too, because then you can switch the Hunter Rand or the Rose Randall two-man action if you want to. And it just I thought Hunter's size was big because Rose was getting comfortable just shooting over Bogdanovich, shooting over the punkers. I thought that I think Nick McMillan, for a guy who now look, he's not facing the caliber of opponent that some of his Pacers teams lost to in the first round. They lost to LeBron's teams. They lost to the Heat last year. But he's gotten – he got fired, basically. After signing an extension, he got fired because uh, of his failure to win any playoff games. I think he's coached a pretty good series. I agree. And I, I think when you fire coaches for lack of playoff success, when they've had really strong regular seasons, sometimes the thing you find out is you don't even get to the playoffs in the first place to disappoint anyone. So, you know, we saw that when George Carl, who, uh, you know, has coached Nate McMillan in Seattle for a long period of time, those two have weirdly parallel 
postseason track records, I guess. Uh, you know, when he got fired in Denver and then they didn't make the playoffs for several seasons after that, it, it wasn't that bad in Indiana, but some similarities in that regard. Uh, one thing I wanted to talk about is, you know, everything we thought about coming into the series was this is the first time that Trey Young is going to face playoff defenses that have thoroughly scouted him and can get used to his tendencies over the course of this series. And, and I wrote about that yesterday in terms of his free throws, his ability to bait defenders into drawing fouls has kind of drawn up, tried up in this series, but he's been able to adjust to it. And it turns out that maybe the people that we should have been talking about in terms of first time playing, facing playoff defenses and how will they adjust to that level of scouting were Julius Randle and RJ Barrett. And one thing I was curious about is, you know, lefties stereotypically are much more left-handed than righties are right-handed, that they have a tougher time going to their offhand. And I went and looked this up yesterday, and according to Basketball References database of lefties, they do drop off more in the playoffs from their regular season performance, about 13% in terms of my wins above replacement player metric is compared to 7% for righties. And how much of, the, how much of that is... How much of that is Harden? Not that much of it. He's not an. I was being a little facetious. Wait, who, yeah. so, so, who are some other lefties that have dropped off notably in the playoffs? Well, David Robinson was not quite the same player in the playoffs. There you go. That's a good one. As he was during the regular season, it's interesting because there are some guys like Derek Fisher was classic playoff overachiever who's a lefty, but he's also not someone you're scouting for in so the same way. So basically, you're arguing that lefties are frauds, Kevin. You're just you're out here. <laughs> lefties are are mentally fragile and can't handle the playoff pressure. So basically, if I'm building a team. I don't want. Remember the Grizzlies had a lineup of five lefties a few years ago. Who knew what a bad idea that was? Well, Conley is like the ultimate exception to this because he's, well, he's like righty. He's, not he's really basically righty. Yeah, uh, but you know, there are Chris Mullen apparently dropped off pretty considerably in the playoffs. I didn't. What about Bosch? Bosch? I feel like Bosch. Well, Bosch had some bad games, but ultimately he did what the Heat asked him to do. You know, he had oh, yeah, zero points in Game Seven of the Finals, but you know. Um, this is, Anthony, I, I want to talk about only this now. <laughs> Anthony Mason, David Stoudemire, these are some names that are jumping out with uh, big, big negative. My sister is a lefty. This all checks out. This all checks out in the low family history. I'm worried I'm not going to be allowed into the leftorium anymore now that after I've revealed this. Oh, I like it. That's two Simpsons references on this podcast. Um, can we look ahead for five minutes to Nets Bucks? Can you just humor me? I'm afraid... I'm afraid to tempt the basketball gods because I had a whole thing on Lakers Clippers last year that just got lit on fire by the Denver Nuggets. So I'm afraid I, I watched a, I watched only a little bit of film over the weekend when it was 2-0 Nets on Friday. And so I'm going to watch all of Harden's pick and rolls against the Bucks. That's only one game because he missed the 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 back to back the baseball back to back they had in Milwaukee. And I just want to see who's guarding him. What do they do? And they said, you know, I can't. I'm, I'm going to stop now. That's it. That's all I'm going to do. But this, there's there's some significant chance, particularly with Anthony Davis's injury, that this is the NBA Finals taking place in the second round. Now, the Sixers, who look incredible and have just stomped a mud hole right in the face of the Washington Wizards through three games, they're going to have a lot to say about that once they brutalize the Hawks in the next round or the Knicks. But... I don't, I'm not saying this is the NBA Finals. I'm saying there's. I put a percentage on it. I don't know, 25%, 50%, 30%. There's some non-trivial chance that this is the NBA Finals, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess we won't know that until hindsight, whether if one of these two teams does go on to win the championship, it was the most difficult series they faced along the way. But, 
you know, Brooklyn, it has, you know, you've mentioned has been your pick since the time of the trade. It took me a couple weeks to come around, but once they started showing proficiency in that switching defense and had that really impressive West Coast road trip where Durant was in and out of the lineup and they still just stomped everyone and looked incredibly cohesive and like their role players, they had enough depth even after making the Harden trade. That's when I jumped on board with the Nets as my championship pick. And Milwaukee, you know, has has been right there in the mix and everything that we hoped to see from Milwaukee in terms of them being a better playoff team with Drew Holiday, it all came true. And then some in that Miami series. Um, if this series happens, because the leprechaun's mad now, Kyrie stepped on him. He's mad. And so who knows what this, what can happen now? Okay. But if that series happens, I just think it's going to be awesome. I, I think the Bucks' big three is grittier and better defensively than the Nets' big three. The Nets' big three has this... I mean, what they did in Boston last night in game four was basically pornography. I mean, it was just... It was obscene. It should be illegal. I, the numbers are a joke. Uh, we have two critical injuries. I think Jeff Green's a big loss for the Nets, and I think DiVincenzo is a big loss for the Bucks. Um there's a lot of interesting things to this series. Um, you know, how how does Brooke Lopez play the pick and roll? Do the, do the Nets play him off the floor? Can Harden hit enough floaters to punish him? Can Joe Harris hit the Duncan Robinson threes to punish him? Um, we saw the Nets in Boston, interestingly, without Jeff Green. They doubled down on playing Durant at center with Bruce Brown, Harris, Kyrie, and Harden. I thought that was really interesting. What's the Bucks' answer to that matchup? And just... How do the Bucks? who guards who? Drew Holiday was their go-to guy on Harden. Um, that would put probably Giannis on KD. But then who's guarding Kyrie? Do you want Pat Connaughton on Kyrie? Do you want Chris Middleton on Kyrie? The matchups start to get really interesting. Uh, is there any one that sticks out to you? Well, let's start with uh, doubling down on playing small because DeAndre Jordan started both of those games in Milwaukee when these two teams played at the beginning of May. Since those two games, he has played five minutes in four seconds total in the last approximately a month here. I mean, it's the second of those games was May 4th here and uh, has not played at all, has not seen the court in the playoffs. So is he going to go from a DNP CD in this Boston series to starting against Milwaukee because they still think he's their best defensive option against Giannis? I was going to say he guarded Giannis a lot. And in fact, I keep bringing up this game, January 18th, Milwaukee in Brooklyn, Giannis set 36 ball screens. And I said at the time, is this going to be a turning point or a bellwether for this team? And the reason he set those ball screens is because Jordan was not guarding him. And if you're doing, if, if your guy's not guarding you, if he's 15 feet away from you, do what Draymond Green does and set a screen for a good shooter who's suddenly going to be open. And that's what they did over and over again. And I wrote about this in the Miami series. They found, okay, Middleton or Holiday? Which one of you is being guarded by one of Miami's bad defenders? Come in this pick and roll with Giannis. Giannis is going to screen for you, and then you're in trouble because your choice is you switch Tyler Hero onto Giannis or you put yourself in rotation with Giannis rolling to the rim and a really good ball handler and shooter dribbling into open space. And Miami had no answer, and they were dead, and they did not want to switch. What's interesting to me is they're going to have that. Milwaukee's going to have that same setup against Kyrie or Harden over and over again on Middleton and Holiday. And I bet the Nets strategy is going to be, we don't care. We are switching. We're going to put Kyrie on Giannis. We're going to put Harden on Giannis. Harden's a good post defender. And we're going to dare Giannis, not dare Giannis. We're going to send help. We're going to test his ability to make reads out of the post. We're going to switch that and stay out of rotation. I can't wait to see what happens then. 
Yeah, I mean, I think one thing you speak to there is this Miami series that a lot of people wanted Milwaukee to avoid so they would have an easier path. And as it turns out, now they're going to have more rest, substantially more rest than Brooklyn, assuming Brooklyn finishes off the Celtics, which is a little amusing. But it was a good preparation for this series because of the similarity in the way those two teams play defensively in terms of the amount of switching they do. Whereas playing this Boston team that is kind of light on weapons without Jalen Brown seems like it might not be a way for the Nets to really ramp up for what they're going to face in the second round if it is uh, the the real NBA Finals. Yeah, that's, that's my only, not issue even with the Kyrie logo thing is like, Beating the Celtics without Robert Williams and Campbell Walker and Jalen Brown is like not a great accomplishment for, for the Brooklyn Nets. You should probably win that game. I, I agree with Kyrie that it's probably pretty personal, especially with everything that's gone on with the uh, the Boston crowd, which was unfortunate with the water bottle getting thrown. But you know the uh, the comparison that I've thought about is when the Cavs came out of the Eastern Conference in those matchups against the Warriors. And then those first two games, the NBA Finals, they go into Oracle and their transition defense was not ready. Their ability to switch their communication there was not ready because they just had not been tested at anywhere near the level that the Warriors had had to be tested getting out of the gauntlet that was the Western Conference. And so I wonder if there's that kind of same kind of slow start adjustment period for the Nets in this series. And that allows Milwaukee to steal home court advantage. I thought the Nets' defense was was pretty damn good and on point in games one and two against Boston. In game three, when the Celtics won, I thought the Nets played a flat-out, arrogant, casual game, failing to box out, not switching when they should, just not talking to each other. Just a game that said, we think the series is over, we're just going to loaf through this game. I didn't even think their defense in game four was not very good. Like it was better, but there was still a lot of those same sort of botched switches, miscommunications, Durant shrugging at Harden, Harden shrugging at Kyrie. Wait, you're supposed to go there. I'm going to go there. Their defensive rebounding rate in this series is capital P pathetic, pathetic. And the Bucs have been a sneaky good offensive rebounding team this season and a not sneaky, like really, really good one against Miami in the first round. They got to clean that stuff up. Like, to your point about Cavs Warriors, now the Warriors is just an all-time offense. Like they play an unusual style that no one has ever prepared for. You can't come in against this Milwaukee team and say we're going to be casual for a half. You just you just can't like a, or casual for a game. You got to bring it every single game against them. And those two games in Boston did not give me a ton of faith that the Nets are going to go into that series with the proper respect level that they should have for the Bucs. Maybe they will because that that opponent in Boston is wounded and overmatched. So maybe 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 I'm judging too harshly, but I would have liked to have seen them play cleaner games in Boston defensively and on the glass. I mean, to your point, the two lowest def- teams in defensive rebound percentage in the playoffs so far are Brooklyn at number 15 and Miami at number 16. And those those offensive rebounds in the first half of game four helped keep Milwaukee afloat when shots weren't falling and in position to, to pull away and take command in that game when they started to do so in the second half. And that's one of the ways that Milwaukee is different in the playoffs. You know, we talked a lot about what they do defensively and, you know, the ability to switch a little more, which didn't really come to the fore in this Miami series. They never really needed to, but offensively the adjustment to put Brooke Lopez in the paint more often to put someone in the dunker spot when Giannis is running pick and roll all those things seem to work out well I mean not that they scored great necessarily every game against Miami but they they worked out in their favor the math trended in their favor I mean I think the other thing I'm curious about that how it's going to carry over from that Miami series is can the Bucks start Bryn Forbes 
will Pat Connaughton start at shooting guard to begin that series, or is that the adjustment you save until after you lose a game, which I think is probably the wrong way to approach it. And I think you nailed it in your column on DiVincenzo's injury. I think the answer in for more minutes than we might anticipate is going to be the Bucks upsize and play Tucker Giannis in one of their centers a little bit more than we've seen Tucker Giannis Portis, Tucker Giannis Lopez. Now, is that ideal? Maybe, maybe not. But, you know, depending on how Forbes holds up defensively and whether Connaughton makes enough open shots, that may end up being their best option. And the film I watched, I went back and watched the five, f- last five minutes of that January 18th matchup, which was the only time these two teams played with all the big three in the lineup because James Harden was injured for those two games in Milwaukee. Didn't Kyrie and, miss that game? I feel like that game also was missing somebody. Oh, yeah, you're right. I think he was. I don't think we've seen. I don't think we've seen these real teams play yet. Period. Uh, I could be wrong. My brain hurts a little bit, so I could be wrong. Was definitely the only time they faced Harden. And Connaughton was more involved in the final five minutes of that game than I remembered. He and DiVincenzo were out there for a stretch because Giannis was getting uh, kind of a mid-quarter rest. And then Giannis came back for DiVincenzo, and DiVincenzo didn't come back for Connaughton until like the last minute and a half of that game. So we've seen Connaughton out there in big moments, and I, I still think he's their best option to finish games, but Tucker does give them another interesting alternative, especially if they feel like they just need more or someone who's not Giannis to deal with KD, I guess. Yeah, Kyrie did not play that game. I'm, I'm, I, you know, look... We'll see, but to, I think DiVincenzo is a significant loss. Like, I think it, it really matters. I think Green really matters, too. And so both these teams are—we'll see when Green comes back. I think they put a 10-day to two-week or something was reported, something like that. So he would, in theory, play at some point during this series, if not most of it, maybe. Um, look, I the Nets have been my pick to win the title. I, does that mean I'm obligated to pick them to win the series? I don't know, because I will say this. <laughs> Milwaukee's performance in the first round— and the hunger and determination they played with and the connect the connectivity they played with. I'll just say this. I'm watching all the film I can before I make a pick in this series because I don't it's less clear to me that Brooklyn should be out and out favored than it was two weeks ago. I mean, we mentioned Trey Young answering questions. Milwaukee answered a ton of questions. It wasn't just that they won the series for nothing. It was the manner in which they controlled it. Because even a lot of the Bucks' playoff wins the last couple of years have still left you feeling a stomachache if you pick them to win the series. Well, even, if even, you're a Bucks fan. even Giannis guarding Butler, which last year we were told we, we don't think he we, we we're not gonna we're not even trying that. Like it was it was like as if it was a ridiculous suggestion. And then you but then they try it and it works really well. Okay, okay is he ready to guard Durant? You know, like like no one's really ready to guard Kevin Durant. The guy's ridiculous. But I just think it's a really good series. And when I say there's some chance it's the NBA Finals, I'm just saying there's some chance. I don't mean to discount Philadelphia, who has, again, obliterated Washington and should have an easy path to the next round. We don't know what the Lakers are going to be like. Hell, the Clippers may have just found them. So we don't know. I'm just saying right now these two teams look incredibly powerful and really well-matched in interesting ways. So, But we don't know. We don't know what the leprechauns have in store. Mr. Pelton, um, you're writing great stuff several times a week for us. I know you're watching all these games. It's a pleasure having you on. All right. Thanks for having me. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, 
which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.